Welcome to episode 43 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This episode will be devoted to a region in the far northwest of Italy, which is called Piedmont in English, Piemonte in Italian, which means the foot of the mountain. It's basically the southern slopes of the, the Alps that form the border with Switzerland. And first, I need to take care of a little bit of housekeeping. It's been quite a while, as many of you have noticed and <laughs> complained about vociferously. It's been quite a while since the last episode came out, roughly two months. And that is quite a contrast to the first 24 months of this series, where I did approximately two episodes per month. There are many reasons for this long hiatus which include two big overseas trips, one of which was to Piemonte, and also an endless list of Jewish holidays, and also my perceived need to take a break from this. But what I think is key is actually my feeling that today's subject is even more complicated than usual, and I found the complexity daunting. So please bear with me as I attempt to interweave several different chains of thought. One is the definition of Piedmont or Piemonte, where it is today, what it was historically, etc. It's very close relationship with the House of Savoy and what Savoy is, was, may someday be again, who knows. And both those stories are interconnected in the sense that the head of the House of Savoy became eventually a king whose capital was in Torino, which is today the capital of the region of Italy called Piemonte. And it's also the home of Fiat and a number of other big industries in northwestern Italy. The fact is that the first capital of modern united Italy was Torino, and the king was the king of Savoy, who became the first king of Italy, and Torino became Italy's first capital in the middle of the 19th century. How that happened is quite a story, and it involves several larger-than-life figures about whom you'll hear later a lot of superlatives. Those figures are not limited to, but include Cavour, Mazzini, and Garibaldi. And finally, there's the Jewish history of this region, which is very different from the Jewish history of any other part of Italy. And there's also the quite distinctive wines, foods, and sort of travel landscape of this region. And I'm going to try to weave all this together. It may not come together right away, but if you'll bear with me, I think you'll learn some very interesting things. So let's try to start with this very complicated relationship between Piemonte and Savoy. Piemonte still appears on maps. It's a specified region in northwest Italy. Its capital is still Torino, and its inhabitants are referred to as Piemontese, Piedmontese, if you will. And according to all my Italian friends, they are the most Frenchified or the most Francophile of all the Italians. Now, there's a reason for this, which is that Savoy, which now only appears on maps as names of regions in the southeast of France, Savoy once included all of Piedmont and lots of southeastern France, including the cities that we know today as Nice, Annecy, Chambéry, etc., etc. It even included at one point one canton of Switzerland called the Vaud, 
V-A-U-D, where the Savoyards occupied a chateau by force until their route to that chateau and that canton was cut off by Geneva during the Protestant Reformation, of which Geneva was a major center. So this remarkable house of Savoy had its origins in a historic region in the Alps between what is now France and Italy. Over time, the House of Savoy expanded its territory and influence through clever marriages, international diplomacy, military prowess, etc., etc. And from ruling a small region on the Franco-Italian border, the dynasty's realm grew to include nearly all of the Italian peninsula by the time the dynasty came to an end, and also many other unexpected places, which I will share with you in just a minute. But first, let's look at the origins of this so-called House of Savoy. The house is descended from a guy named Umberto I, the Count of Sabaudia, who lived in the early part of the 11th century, originated in Saxony, which is part of Germany today. And the earliest recording of the family name was two brothers in the 10th century, Amadeus and Umberto. Although this was originally a very poor region, later counts of Savoy were skilled diplomatically and gained control over vital mountain passes between Italy and Switzerland, Italy and France, etc., etc. And the Holy Roman Emperor in the year 1416 elevated the head of the House of Savoy from the status of count to the status of duke. So Savoy became a duchy. In 1494, Charles VIII of France passed through Savoy on his way to Italy and Naples, which initiated the Italian War of 1494-98. During the outbreak of the next Italian War, the Holy Roman Emperor stationed imperial troops in Savoy, and when France invaded Savoy and Piemonte, taking Torino by force in 1536, the Duke of Savoy fled and eventually returned, and there was a lot of seesawing back and forth. And the important image to keep in mind here is that most European countries that we think of today as having static borders, be it Italy, France, Germany, whatever, were really composed of lots of smaller domains, duchies, city-states, counties, all kinds of other units the shape of all these states was constantly changing over the centuries. And so what was once this little place in the northwestern corner of Italy and the southeastern corner of France became, through a variety of, of mechanisms, the heads of many far-flung countries. And I'm about to give you a list. So fair warning, this list may take your breath away. It's almost incredible. But at one point in time, the head of the House of Savoy was the King of Sicily from 1713 to 1720. And then, separately, but also in parallel, the King of Sardinia, which is another large Italian island that's part of Italy today, just like Sicily is. But they were the heads of the House of Savoy were kings of Sardinia for a much longer time, from 1580 until 1861, when Sardinia became part of Italy and the King of Savoy became the King of Italy. The head of the House of Savoy was also, at least briefly, 
the Emperor of Ethiopia from 1936 to 1941, the King of Albania from 1939 to 1943, the King of Spain from 1870 to 1873, and as under the reigning name of Tomislav II, was also the King of Croatia during World War II from 1941 to 1943. Also, in 1396, way back, the title and privileges of the final king of the Armenian kingdom of Cilicia, Levon V, were transferred to James I, his cousin, who was also king of Cyprus and, not coincidentally, head of the House of Savoy. The title of King of Armenia was thus united with the titles of King of Cyprus and King of Jerusalem, and the title, at least, was held to the modern day by the House of Savoy. Now, obviously, Armenia hasn't been a kingdom for a long time. Cyprus was a British colony. Jerusalem was part of the Ottoman Empire. But nonetheless, these titles that were left over from the Crusades came indirectly to be attached to the House of Savoy and to add to the prestige of that family. Moving up to slightly more recent history, in 1792, during the French Revolution, the Kingdom of Piedmont and Sardinia joined the first coalition against the French First Republic. This was, of course, the House of Savoy, and they were beaten in 1796 by Napoleon and forced to sign the disadvantageous Treaty of Paris in that same year, giving the French army free passage through Piemonte and effectively ending the functional independence of Piemonte. Turin was occupied, and by the way, Torino and Turin are the same place, and the famous Shroud of Turin is located there, among many other things. We'll come back to Torino when we talk about how it became the first capital of modern Italy. Eventually, in 1814, the kingdom was restored and enlarged with the addition of the former Republic of Genoa by the Congress of Vienna. In the meantime, nationalist figures like Mazzini were influencing popular opinion throughout the Italian peninsula. Mazzini believed that Italian unification could only be achieved through a popular uprising, a revolution. But after the failure of many revolutions that took place in Europe in the year 1848, the Italian nationalists began to look at the Kingdom of Sardinia and its prime minister, Cavour, as leaders of the unification movement. This process of unifying Italy was called the Risorgimento, the resurgence, which is a little bit misleading because there had never been an Italy before. There was the Italian peninsula, on which most people spoke a certain form of Italian, and there were key islands where, like Sardinia and Sicily, where forms of Italian were spoken. But there was no notion of Italy as a nation state at any point before the 19th century. And in the 19th century, the modern notion of the nation state was born, spread through Europe like wildfire, and was responsible for many, if not all, the revolutions of 1848. Garibaldi, about whom you will hear much more later, was initially committed to a democratic Italy that would be a republic, but eventually decided that a monarchy was the most practical option, and the natural candidate to be the first king of Italy was the King of Savoy, Vittorio Emanuele, who was crowned King of Italy in 1861. 
When that happened, however, his realm did not include the region of Venice, which was still subject to Habsburg governance, the region of Lazio with Rome, Umbria, Marche, and Romagna, and a few other places where there were still strong influences of the papacy and papal territories, including the papal town of Bologna, for example. But the House of Savoy continued to rule Italy for several decades through the whole series of Italian wars of independence as Italian unification proceeded, and even as the First World War raged early in the 20th century. In fact, this kingdom of Italy did not end until a later Vittorio Emanuele aligned himself too closely with Mussolini. And so at the end of World War II, when Mussolini was defeated, he was tainted by his closeness with the fascists. And the Kingdom of Italy formally came to an end on June 12, 1946, when Umberto, the son of the second Vittorio Emanuele, transferred his powers to the prime minister and called for the Italian people to support the new republic. He then went into exile in Portugal, never to return, and died in 1983. Under the constitution of the Italian Republic, the republican form of government cannot be changed by constitutional amendment, thus forbidding any attempt to restore the monarchy short of adoption of an entirely new constitution. The constitution also forbids male descendants of the House of Savoy from entering Italy. This provision was removed in 2002, but as part of the deal to be allowed back into Italy, another Vittorio Emanuele, the last claimant to the House of Savoy, renounced all his claims to the throne. Now, what about the House of Savoy today? The residences of the family in Turin and other places are World Heritage Sites and protected. The leadership of the House of Savoy was actually contested in the 21st century, early in the 2000s, by two cousins, Vittorio Emanuele, the Prince of Naples, who used to claim the title of King of Italy, and Prince Amadeo, the Duke of Aosta, who claimed the title of Duke of Savoy. Their rivalry has not always been peaceful. In 2004, following a dinner held by King Juan Carlos I of Spain on the eve of the wedding of his son Felipe, Vittorio Emanuele punched Amadeo twice in the face. And there were a number of fistfights, murders, etc. And it was a drama that continued well into the 2000s. So the House of Savoy and certain claimants to the title of head of household are still around. And what's perhaps more interesting is that Piemonte is now more functional than ever because it's an official unit of Italy. And it doesn't have any particular ties anymore to Sardinia or any place else that used to belong to the House of Savoy. But it does rightly claim to produce some of the world's greatest wines. And just to give you a tickler for the next episode and a little bit of a taste of the region that I traveled in in end of September, the hilltop villages of, for example, Barolo and Barbaresco each produce some of the most famous wines in Italy. And to give you one idea, we went during the grape harvest to visit Barbaresco and went to a very nice restaurant there and they failed to bring us a wine list. So I said, may we have a wine list, please? And the guy said, oh, I'll do you one better. I'll bring you two. 
So one volume that had about 6,000 wines in it was only wines from Barbaresco, the village in which we were sitting, and Barolo, for all intents and purposes, the next door village. And these are both very prestigious wines where at the upper end of the wine list, the wines were like $6,000 a bottle. At the lower end, they were more like $75 a bottle. But the second wine list, which was equally long, was wines from everywhere else. The rest of Italy, even places that were like 25 miles away, were considered everywhere else. And wines from France, from Switzerland, from Austria, from Germany, from Australia, from South Africa, from Argentina, from all over the world. But they were all considered like other, as opposed to the wines of not only Piemonte, but this precise region in which these two very famous villages sit. So in the following episodes, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the heroes of this process of the unification of Italy and how they were truly larger than life. And we'll also talk about the Jewish history of the region and how it was in many ways different from the history of the Jews in any other part of Italy possibly because Piemonte itself has such a different history from the rest of the country. All right, I look forward to talking with you again soon, and I promise that it won't be another two months. Thank you.